0: Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, Attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Here's Attorney CPA Joe Cordell.
1: Welcome to another episode of Life's Third Act. We're picking up this week with part two of what we discussed in our last show. And the focus in the last show was to answer the question, "Why plan?" And we we presented one alternative that many people choose, which is to sort of by piecemeal approach uh, have individual assets transmitted or transferred or or uh, conveyed to their loved ones. We didn't talk much about a will, but we can we can talk about that too as an alternative to what we would consider a good plan. Many would say a will, well, that's a plan. And I agree with that. I agree that a will is better than... than better no- than nothing. It's better than nothing, and it's better than simply non-probate transfers. And when I use the word non-probate transfers, that's a phrase for you to know, because that's the way that the the law in Missouri, and quite frankly, the law in all right. states, because this is a uniform, a uniform legislation that was adopted by I think almost all 50 states that deal with non-probate transfers. And and what falls under that heading is all those ways in which you can convey stuff at your death to other people. So it includes the TOD, transfer on death on your securities accounts. It includes a POD, payable on death, which applies generally to bank accounts. Um, it apply. It, it also includes beneficiary clauses that you would find at your recorder of deeds. It's a way you can transfer real estate at your death. There are also beneficiary clauses, of course, for like apply. your home. Your yeah, your home, home too. You can do it with your home. You can you can do it with your retirement accounts, IRAs, four hundred one ks. They will have a beneficiary designation. Uh, similarly, life insurance beneficiary yes. designation. Whenever we talk about that as being inadequate or a poor way to plan. Uh, we're not saying that there's not a place for using those designations, but you use those designations to place those assets under a central level of control. For example, a trust. Right. And a trust is really, you know, the the standard tool by which you create a an overarching plan that is intended to benefit the people you care about for a long period of time, multi multiple generations. Right. You know the laws changed about how long can a trust be in effect, and and for a long time there was this thing called the rule against perpetuities, that where you bumped up against it if you tried to to go too far in the future of helping you know your. The, the people you care about. What's that called? And their descendants. It's called the rule against perpetuities.
0: I've not heard that.
1: Oh, it lurks around out there. I can tell you, it gets a ton of attention in law school. And it and when it comes up, you know, in practice, it gets a lot of attention. Okay. Attention disproportionate, quite frankly, to its importance. Strong roots are essential for a healthy tree, especially your family tree. That's why you work hard to take care of your family every day. At Tucker Allen. We know that taking care of your family means planning for the future. Our team provides personalized estate planning to help you protect your family, your legacy, and your future. From wills and trusts to long-term care and estate planning, count on Tucker Allen. Personalized estate planning made simple especially now that we have new laws where you can have what's called a dynasty trust. You can have a trust that's in effect for multiple generations. And let me say again, as, I, as I've said to you all many times, this is not just for rich people. Life's Third Act is not a show that's intended just for rich people. No. We, we hope that some of you out there are, uh, good for you. But but that it's not a show that's designed just for people who have a lot of money. But but for those of you who think that trusts are for people who have millions and millions of dollars, it's not true.
0: And I admit, at one time, I thought that.
1: Yeah. I well, did think that. You know, we grow up in a culture where when you hear the word trust used, it's probably in a movie. Trust it, fund baby. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's used in a derogatory way. Yeah. Or it's been characterized in a movie as something that applied to the rich and famous, uh, maybe in the news when you hear about it. So there's this myth that this is something that if you don't have a lot of money then you should just have a "quote unquote simple will." Yes. And and I agree that a will as we've said is better than nothing. So, you know, if 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 you're only willing to do a will, so be it. And incidentally, a will a well-done will will have what's called a testamentary trust. A testamentary trust just means that a trust comes into existence, but it comes into existence in the will. So, that would be fine. If if it wasn't for the fact that now everything has to run through probate, where you have delay, you have people who's are reaching their hands into the probate estate legally, hopefully just legally, but legally is bad enough. Right. Meaning, if you look at the compensation that's paid to a PR, which is a a the the a state representative, the personal representative, I mean, this is based upon the amount of money that's involved it could be tens of thousands hundreds of thousands i mean it adds up uh, and in what if you read the statute you can tell lawyers wrote the statute that applies that states the compensation yeah. that a personal representative which is the executor is supposed to get in at after you pass because if you read the statute it says at a minimum they're to get the schedule of percentages based on the value of the estate at a minimum now, that doesn't sound like something that, that you know, the, the common individual, the person off the street wrote. That's something that lawyers, I suspect, uh, had a hand in, and it's a very generous provision. So the bottom line is probate is not something that you want to ask for. Uh, It's bad enough that you're going to get it if you've done a will, but it's not something you should sign up and volunteer for. And people who do wills sign up and volunteer, consciously volunteer for probate. Because if you have a will, you are assured probate. Matter of fact, you're promised it because it's supposed to protect your estate. It's supposed to assure that your stuff goes to the right people after Everybody who has a legitimate claim has had a chance to take out their portion. So whatever's left is what's going to be available for those you care about.
0: And, you know, something I want to point out with the will, isn't it true that that will has to be filed within one year or the anniversary, the one-year anniversary of that person's death? Yeah. And if it's not, then it's null and void. Am I correct?
1: Yeah. it's a one. You have a one-year period of time. To, yeah. for that to be submitted to probate for the right. will whoever has it.
0: And if you don't then
1: then then you're... what happens is it's what's called intestate succession. So what that means is that the law that the state decides through its statute who is to receive your stuff. Contrast that with the the fact that let's assume that you know that you should have a trust. Um and that would be a great thing meaning if you already know that a trust is a good thing and and you're just thinking but I'm going to have the trust created after probate or through probate. In other words, I'm going to provide for a trust in my will. Um, boy, that is a terribly expensive uh, and painful way to end up with the trust. But it's better than not having a trust. But guess what? Thankfully, there's an alternative. You can create a trust while you're alive. And it does none of that will go through probate. I mean, it it immediately after you pass your beneficiary when you create the trust, after you pass, then immediately the next tier, presumably your children, it could be anybody. But whoever you name, the next tier of beneficiaries, they they step into the position of receiving benefits according to the trustees decisions that you name and you set the rules. You define what's paid out and when it's paid out. You can give the trustee broad what's called broad discretion. Where they get to pay out what they think is right based on the values that you've communicated, but alternatively, you can have very specific provisions. Only income can be paid out to my children, uh, and then the balance, being the principal of those assets, will go to, for example, to my grandchildren.
0: And I think that's the beauty of a trust because you can have it tailored any way you want to meet your wishes. You you know, and I I do like that.
1: And and I, I like the the way that we characterized it last week. And I want you to think about this whole discussion, yeah, as a sort of yield question, yield. And the yield, unlike when we talk about financial assets and and CPAs and financial analysts, those sorts talk a whole lot about yield, and it means trying to get the most return on your money. And it's an obsession on wall street and and MIT and other places. But for our discussion, there's a counterpart to that. We need to think about yield. But yield means for you and for us, um, how do we get, extract, squeeze out the most benefit for the people we care about of every dollar that is in our estate when we leave this world? How do we maximize that yield? And that's a broader subject than than something as simple as I would even argue as mundane as the rate of return. Rate of return is important and you can you can certainly better control that through a trust than you can through any of the alternatives, in my opinion. But, but I'm arguing there's something more important to think about here that includes that, but includes so much more. And that's how you maximize this good for the people you care about, which will include people you've not met yet, such as some grandchildren you may not have met yet. Uh, maybe their children, depending on perhaps the size of your estate. But I don't want you to think that you have to have a l- many millions of dollars in order to to protect two generations or to provide a substantial benefit to two generations. So trusts allow you to do that. You get to set those rules. And, and another thing that, that that is so powerful with trusts is you can – other, let me back up and say other ways that you increase the yield would include um, putting a provision in a trust that would allow one of your loved ones, whether it's a child, a grandchild, if they have some sort of disability, to receive the benefits that they would otherwise be entitled to without exhausting the, their personal funds, the money that you have given them. You've placed it in their account, and guess what? Now they're disqualified from getting a lot of the benefits that they would otherwise qualify for. Scholarships for college, uh, income benefits, um, benefits related to housing and health care, all those things, mm-hmm. you know, state and federal government, not to mention even, even private agencies, have rules, and those rules are governed based upon how much money is available, and and unless you have in place a trust that's properly worded then any assets that they have are going to go onto those financial applications and they'll be disqualified they'll almost certainly be disqualified from federal and state benefits well the good news is that by by having a trust you get to put in provisions where that money will suddenly become no longer available quote unquote for purposes of how these institutions measure their eligibility. So that's just one example. Think of the power of that, though. You may say, well, my kids are healthy. Well, my kids are healthy right now, too. But I don't know that they're going to be healthy 20, 30 years from now. And not not to mention my grandkids, which I don't have yet. But anyway. It's coming. Yes, I'm confident of that. Um, So you can provide a benefit beyond simply the amount of money that you're sticking in their account. Uh, what about protecting them from divorce? Uh, you can. That's very easy to do with a trust, and I, I routinely suggest that that our clients consider having a provision that would not pay out all the money at once, but would still make it generously available for their, their a child or a grandchild.
0: So, are you saying distribute over time?
1: Uh, yeah I do. I'm not a fan of a provision that dumps all the money in their lap at one time and and again, I'm not assuming we're talking about a million or ten million dollars here. I'm assuming even fifty thousand dollars, maybe uh, even a hundred. it depends it It very much depends.
0: Uh, Can but, you put something though in there, you know, saying if uh they get divorced from the spouse, the spouse is not entitled?
1: Well, the way you do it is you let them take the money out as it's needed. And, and so you, you, it's paid out in dribs and drabs, but it's paid out in a way that they get the benefit. The whole idea is not to prevent them from getting the benefit. You want your loved one to get the benefit. But here's what happens. I can tell you this as a, as a former divorce lawyer. What happens is any money that's given as a gift or an inheritance in 90-plus percent of the cases goes directly into a joint account for a married beneficiary. I can just tell you that's what happens. That's the way the world works. Many of you have seen it happen. Some of you have experienced it. You've gotten an inheritance and it didn't occur to you to do anything else. It never occurred to you to carefully segregate those monies and to assure that they were never commingled with the money that you earned, which incidentally what you earn is a marital asset. So you have to be sure not to deposit that in the same account. So you, you have to be very meticulous to be able to keep that money segregated sufficiently so that it continues to be the separate asset that it was when you got it. Now, I can count almost on one hand the number of clients I've seen at Cordell & Cordell over the years, not quite one hand, but uh, but the point is a small percentage have been so meticulous when they got that money that they honored those uh, rules. And what what happens is people function a married couple, even if they're even if it's a rocky marriage, their money goes into a pot, a single pot, right. and it gets commingled. and And even if they have separate accounts, they put what they earn in their separate accounts, which is a marital asset. What they earn is a marital asset. Your paycheck when you're married is a marital asset. So if you put a paycheck in with with a an inheritance. Hundred thousand bucks. You put five thousand dollars in there, a paycheck, and you put it in there for a period of a year or two or three or four. You've been earning interest. Some of the interest was related to your inheritance. Some of the interest was related to the related to the five thousand dollars which came in in a series of payments. And and is it possible to, with precision, extricate the amount of money that that constituted your inheritance from that pot? I can tell you that most judges have have just said, no, it's hopelessly commingled. You may say, well, no, wait, I, I put 50000 in there. Why can't I pull out $50,000? thats isn't the way it works because you had interest on interest and money. Some money was pulled out. The money that was pulled out and used, was that money the fifty, or was it the, the portion that came from your paycheck? So it's a very yeah. – you put it in the hands of opposing counsel for the other spouse. And I can tell you that that, that money is likely to be considered marital. hopelessly commingled, marital. Yeah. So this is just another way in which you increase yield. We're talking about increasing the ability of every dollar you have to do much more good than you might have thought. So yield is important. And why would you choose to do things in which you minimize the good rather than maximize the good? And a trust allows you to maximize the good. What about debts? You know, what about the debts of your children, of their children? Uh, did you know that with proper wording, it's called a spendthrift clause, uh, it doesn't mean your child's a spendthrift. It, it's a, it's, that's simply a phrase that came along, a legal term that's been used for a century now, and all it means is it's a provision that says that a creditor cannot access money that's held in trust. In trust. As long as you have a provision in the trust that allows the trustee to withhold paying it out. Not because they want to withhold your child's money. They know that if they give it to your child, then immediately it's going to get taken away by this creditor. So your child agrees, don't give me the money because I'm going to lose it immediately. I'm going to get, have it taken away by a judgment or a garnishment that may already exist on the bank account where it would go in. Right. So the moment that it's paid out, it's gone to the creditor through a garnishment, for example. Alternatively, it'd be a lawsuit with a pending judgment. So you can easily, easily protect that money from any risk of a creditor, even if your kids are very responsible. They may have that wonderful propensity to be an entrepreneur. And guess what? The average entrepreneur I read once goes bankrupt twice. Now, I know that they can't... Mm-hmm. That's not been my experience of the people I know going to business, but it's been my experience that they go broke, uh, sure. yeah, that they have a couple of businesses that fail. And and then eventually those who become se- successful, usually it's not their first business. It's the second or third. And you can protect your child from the consequences of that. I mean, you have creditors who are still out there. Yeah, you want your children to pay their debts, but you'd rather that those debts not be paid with the inheritance that you're providing them.
0: So I want to kind of get an idea of what this looks like. So say you are leaving your child $100,000, and you obviously, this child has debts, outstanding debts, uh, maybe perhaps a lawsuit. So you don't want to give this child $100,000 all at once, okay? Mm -hmm. So say the debts are for $40,000. Okay, so you're just wanting to give them... Like a certain amount each time so those uh creditors can't come in so i mean w- give me like a number that would protect them
1: um, well here's the way and that's a good way question to raise because some people uh i understand it's not clear how these mechanics work how do you protect them and still give them the money they need to live on normally if you have assets that are held by a third party you're allowed to get a lien or garnishment which is a many people don't realize that that order is issued to a third party that is holding funds that belong to to uh, this child in this example so that third party could be the trustee it could be a bank it could be an employer so how many of you know that that you know you've heard of garnishments being on bank accounts and you've heard of employers getting a notice that they have to pay sure. you know now there are laws that say an employer can't pay everything you know there are percentages that are available for garnishment, but but you get the point. Uh, those actions are ways in which a creditor they file a lawsuit, they get a judgment, and then they take that judgment and they register it, and they're able to have a lien uh, against certain assets that you own, and you can you can even send those in the form of a garnishment to people who owe you money. So. How does a trustee protect when you have $100,000 that's sitting in an account that may have become 150000 depending on what the investments were, how do you protect then um, that money from the claims of a creditor against a beneficiary? Because you may say, well, gee, that money is supposed to go to that beneficiary. Well, through a trust, through properly wording, you can create a spendthrift provision. And courts universally have said, in virtually all the states, have said that that if you have that provision, then those funds are not subject to a garnishment or lien. The only thing they can do is is technically, if they were to pay that money to a beneficiary and it were going to a bank account in the name of the beneficiary, at that point, they could take it. Well, for one thing, you've done a whole lot of good by not simply taking the 100000 and handing it out. Right. Remember, we've already fixed that. But you may say, well, yeah, but what about the $2,000 you might pay out a month? Well, it's true if the two thousand dollars goes in the account, they could get that, but you can prevent that. I mean, you can pay the money directly to the beneficiary. There's so many ways to assure. and And what you've really done is you've allowed the beneficiary to continue their life to to pay their their rent, uh, to pay their car payment. Things that need to be paid, you can you can protect all that. Uh, but it's still you may say, well, but if they get the money and they let it accumulate in a bank account once it's in their name, it's not in the trust name, it's in their name, and uh, yeah, but that's the whole idea is you can prevent that number one, but number two is it's better to lose two thousand and going into an account than to lose a hundred thousand
0: so but this money would be paid to this heir, the beneficiary
1: mm-hmm.
0: in the form of a check
1: if it goes into a check, the beneficiary can cash it and take cash. And pff, it's protected. I mean, there's no we way to it take it. Put it in a
0: shoebox if they want.
1: Yeah, I mean, I. You, I mean, we, we it's not kinda, a good
0: idea, but.
1: But to, but to but, for you to make your point, that's correct. Okay. Yes, you could. So the but but here's the important thing is that so many so much mischief so many bad things can happen when you take a pot of money and hand it out to your loved ones and. I don't care if they're mature. I don't care if they have good judgment. I don't care if they're doctors, lawyers, whatever they are. When you put it in their name, they are vulnerable in a lot of ways, and there's nothing they can do about it. They can't go out and create a trust for themselves that has the power of what a third party can do for obvious reasons. You know, we can't go out and build a wall around our money and let us use it the way a third party can build a wall around their money and hand it to us. It's just, it's considered fair play, for lack of a better way to put it. It it doesn't seem fair. So there are a lot of restrictions on your ability to create that sort of protection for yourself once you've received money for you to be able to, to create a trust that will do all those things as effectively. Whereas when someone else gives you a gift and they put conditions on it that way, then it's not unfair to a creditor. It's not unfair to anyone else because, you know, the... The, the debtor is not the one who created this. A third party did. You did. You created it. So these are examples that we've given here of the ways in which there's so much more yield, so much more good that you're able to provide those you care about than if you simply, through a piecemeal approach, through you know a, a box of designations, TODs, PODs called non-probate transfers, I mean, I think of that to be honest with you as a mess and it's it's just a bad idea. It does not resemble a plan, even if it dumps money directly into the hands of those you care about when you pass away. That is not a plan. Let me make another point too. You should know that that the that these monies under under a non-probate transfer, they're still vulnerable to claims of creditors. So, if you think that if you do a non-probate transfer that that, that somehow avoids that risk, it doesn't. Um, if first creditors under the law of Missouri, and this is the law in most states, uh, they have to first make an effort to satisfy all their claims through the probate estate. And if they can't satisfy all their claims through the probate estate, then they can go to what's called a non-probate transfers. So, it's different. Uh, but but you should know that, that, that still uh, there is an obligation of a creditor to make it every effort they can to get the money they're owed through the probate estate. But when it's insufficient, they're allowed to seek out that payment through what we've now we've defined for you, a non-probate transfer. And um, all those are vulnerable, including, incidentally, a living trust that was revocable at the time. Here's the test. The test is, was the lore or the the decedent, was the decedent able to access that money to pay creditors at the time of their death? Could they have personally accessed that money? And if they had that reasonable degree of access, and, and another way of measuring it is do creditors have access before the death? And if the answer is yes, then they have access after the death if the probate estate is insufficient. So there is still a, a wall, a barrier there. Now that can be penetrated, but still there's a barrier first that has to be overcome. And that's the fact that that there's you know there are there's money in the probate estate, take that first. And once that's exhausted, then they can go for those other things. But a trust, if it if it is written correctly, will not meet that criteria at the time of your death. But that's another show. But still, if it were simply a revocable living trust, then it would be subject to the same vulnerability as to creditors at the time of your death. But now that's different. Don't confuse that the conversation we're talking about when we're talking about yield. We're talking about yield meaning increasing the benefit to those you love for, for with survivors. the money. Yeah. With the money that you leave them, you know, so that they're protected as much as they can be from from taxes and and creditors and divorce and and this litigious lawsuit society we live in, you can give them money with that is special money. It has a special protection that makes it far more valuable than simply the face on the the face value of the money. I mean what how do you compare five hundred thousand dollars, for example uh, you, know, you know, denuded of all these protections to five hundred thousand dollars with these protections. You know, is it worth more than five hundred? Yeah, what we could argue about how much more, but surely we can agree it's worth more. Well, I wonder what it cost you in estate planning to create that. Did it cost you a couple thousand bucks maybe, and and you get the protections I just described. I mean, it's such an incredible deal, even, and, and this it sounds like an argument by a lawyer on behalf of lawyers, <laughs> but I can, I, can say, I can say this to you. Uh, I've made the same argument to family members who couldn't even come to me because they're in other states, uh, but I would say this to you, even if you're going to another lawyer, if you're not going to Tucker Allen, I would still say to you, it's simply a fact. It's an incredible, incredible deal. To be able to spend, and I said a couple thousand, maybe it's a little more. But the point is to be able to spend that much money and get the value of what we've been talking about and on the show, protecting
0: your loved ones and and yourself, of course.
1: Yeah, I mean it. it it's just not even. Um, there's just no way to justify not doing it. I, that's that's all I can say. It's a stewardship function. It's a responsibility that we all have to those we love and care about. But anyway, I'm off my soapbox at this point. So You love that uh, soapbox. Yeah, I do. I do love that soapbox. <laughs> uh, okay, I guess this is a good place to stop. Um, one thing we should mention is I think coming up on our next show, we're going to have Nina on, who uh, attorney with Tucker Allen. Yeah. She's going to be talking about how to protect your pets.
0: Our four-legged
1: friends. Yes, and your estate planning. I've got a
0: lot of questions
1: about that. Okay. Th- this ought to be very interesting. Uh, many of you know I'm a dog lover. As a matter of fact, Scout just walked in here. I don't think you could tell, but she came here a few minutes ago, and I got distracted.
0: She barged in through the door. She yeah. kn- She was going to make her appearance.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, soon we're going She's to have to put her in one of these chairs. But Yeah. <laughs> In any case. So you'll find Nina's discussion, though, about how to do planning for the care of pets. Very interesting. And we have relatively new laws now that make that very, very feasible. So this has been another episode of Life's Third Act. Till next time, take care.
0: You've been listening to Life's Third Act, a podcast for thriving in retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. Each week, we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit TuckerAllen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.